Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. At the start of the Civil War, Cincinnati, Ohio was the largest city in the West and one of the most vulnerable, located on the Ohio River that marked the border between slavery and freedom. The city would play an important role in how the war was conducted and would make a substantial contribution to the eventual victory of the United States. The city would also change greatly in the next 150 years, but you can still find traces of its Civil War past if you look hard enough or if you follow the directions in Cincinnati in the Civil War, the Union's Queen City. It's written by David L. Mowry, and he'll be our guest tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not representing the university, not authorized by the university to be here at this hour, just using my office to talk civil war with you on my own hook, and my guest likewise is responsible for his own comments, as we always do here on the show. Uh, Coming in to do the show at night is not a bad uh, thing, because I get to park right up close to the building. I've been getting... uh, a lot. Actually, I've been getting zero requests from from listeners about the parking situation here at ECU, which I've talked about in the past. So I'll go ahead and talk about it anyway. Uh, some may recall that last year I would revel in the fact that I had discovered a secret parking place that used to be designated for motorcycles only and got repainted, and nobody noticed they had taken the sign down. And I would park there right at the front of the parking lot. Uh, well, this year the secret is out. It's all clearly marked, and now people fill that space first. But 
last summer, uh, that's the summer of 2021, as the pandemic was uh, moving along, I had been teaching from home for uh, well over a year, and it did not uh, sit well. The 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 uh, indolence, the uh, sedentariness of teaching online left me uh, heavier than ever, and so last June I decided to start watching my weight a little bit and walk a little more, try to do the 10,000 steps. I don't come close to that. My wife does every day. I, I don't make it, but but I walked more. And uh, that means now when I go to the parking lot, instead of looking for the closest space, I park in the farthest space. I add 100 yards to my my walk to the office from, from the parking lot and get some extra steps in that way. And the result is I am uh, thrilled to say 20 pounds down from where I was at the peak of the pandemic and heading, holding steady there. It's, it's good enough. At least I'm not, don't look like I have a bowling ball under my t-shirt any longer. Um, we'll see if I can do any better. Uh, parking tomorrow will be a, an issue. This is the last Wednesday here in October of 2021. And tomorrow, October 28th, 2021, if you're, uh, ha- if you're, listening bright and early and then we haven't already got there yet east carolina will be playing a home football game at night on a thursday night it'll be on espn you can watch it look for me there i'll be wearing black um so will everybody else it's a blackout night but uh, uh you can look for me in section two uh row x i think is where i'm sitting with some other faculty uh and uh you know, we'll, we'll uh, be cheering on the Pirates. They've asked us to end classes uh, at 3 p.m. because there will be traffic and tailgating and, and lots of confusion and give people a chance to get out of town if they're doing that or go home or whatever. And in my younger days, I would have been suitably outraged at putting uh, football ahead of, of actual classes. I have a class that ends at 3.15. And now I'm thinking, hey, 15 minutes, you're going to pay me for it? I don't have to teach? I'll take it. So we'll we'll move on. Um, although I, I don't want to sound flippant about teaching, it is still the by far the most uh, satisfying part of the job of being a professor. There's a fellow uh, locally who has a, a Twitter account and who is a professor at ECU, but anonymous. And I was looking at it today, and that person was complaining about how their students don't attend classes and now we're being told to let them out early they don't even show up anyway and I have to say my my thoughts about that are if you're not providing something that the students want to come to or if you're not holding them accountable and requiring them to be there then uh, what are you complaining about the uh, it would be as if I were complaining about you not listening to this podcast you don't have to if you don't want to go do something else why not there's no obligation to if if an instructor is not giving students something that they need to learn or get better or just to get a better grade if they can get it all by staying home and reading the book why should they show up uh, so so rather than complain about it uh, pick up your game make your class better uh, so there I've made friends with my fellow faculty members with that rant uh, let me make friends with you by telling you who's going to be on the show next week. It will be Michael K. Brantley, uh, author of a 
relatively new book called Galvanized, The Odyssey of a Reluctant Carolina Confederate. It's about a relative of his, I believe, and look forward to reading that and discussing it with him. On the 10th, Brad Asher will tell us about someone nobody liked, apparently, the most hated man in Kentucky, and you'll have to tune in to find out who that was. On the 17th, uh, Charlie Knight returns to the show he's been on before. His new book is a day-by-day study of Robert E. Lee's Civil War. That's the subtitle. From Arlington to Appomattox is the main title. And I'll, I'll just confess up front, I'm probably not going to read all 600 pages cover to cover, but I'll read enough to know what how he's approaching this day-by-day study of Lee's Civil War. No new show on Thanksgiving of 2021. We've all got other places to be. But a couple shows to finish up the fall season. We'll have uh, Carrie Janey, Caroline E. Janey, will return to the show with a really interesting new book that I've already started digging into. It's called Ends of War, The Unfinished Fight of Lee's Army After Appomattox. And we'll wrap up the season with Deborah Willis and her uh, National Book Award nominee, The Black Civil War Soldier, A Visual History of Conflict and Citizenship. And we'll take a break for winter break at that point. Uh, You can find out about all those at www.com impedimentsofwar.org where Mark Gaffney tells us who's publishing what, who's coming up next on the show. If you click on the book pictures there to buy your books, including tonight's book, uh, Mark gets a click-through bonus. Uh, Benefit him. Please do that if you will. If you can't buy your book at a local bookstore, it would be better still. And uh, you can also donate to Civil War TR at AOL.com. That's the Civil War Talk Radio Book and Other Things Fund. I specify other things. There's no obligation on my part to spend it on something socially redeeming, and indeed I might not. Uh, It's just a gift. It's not a tax-deductible charitable fund. It benefits no one but me and you in the sense that you feel good about helping the show continue. Uh, Recurring donations are especially welcome. Put in a couple bucks every month and that helps make sure that we've got enough to keep the lights on and so on. Tonight, we are talking about the city of Cincinnati in the Civil War. Our guest, David Mowry, has been on the show before. He has written about Morgan's Raid, uh, related certainly to this topic. Uh, the book was Morgan's Raid, Morgan's Great Raid, that was the title, The Remarkable Expedition from Kentucky to Ohio. And we talked about it. Uh, exactly five years ago uh, within one day I have an informal rule on Civil War talk radio to not interview the same person more than once in five years to try to create more space for new voices new authors to be on the show otherwise people like Jack Davis or Harold Holzer could be on every week they write a lot of books so uh, this is actually just coincidence uh, that it was exactly five years ago plus one day that uh, the tonight's guest was last on the show. Uh, Dave, are you there? Yes. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me back. Well, welcome back. It, it, uh, I didn't plan it to be exactly five years, but here it is. It was late October. It was just getting dark out as it is tonight, and uh, Halloween is approaching. So maybe we can do this again five years from now if you've got another book in the hopper. Uh, well, how have you been? Be very nice. Uh, how are things going? Uh, 
Uh, very well, thank you. Very well. I'm on the lecture circuit again, and uh, very happy to be speaking on Morgan's Raid and this very new topic on Cincinnati and the Civil War. So you're a native of Cincinnati, is that correct? Yes, I am. Born and raised. Um, lived my whole life in the city, and uh, been very fortunate to travel to all 50 states in the United States, um, and have visited over 700 uh, Civil War and American other American military battlefields around the around the world. So. When we talked about Morgan's Raid, that's a story that everybody who knows a little bit about the Civil War has heard of John Hunt Morgan and his famous raid. Um, Cincinnati, on the other hand, there's no battle of Cincinnati in the Civil War, no no major action there. What what was the pitch you used to a publisher to say, I've, I think we should do a book on this city during the war? Mainly because of Cincinnati's impact to the logistics of the Civil War primarily in the Western theater, Cincinnati had a major impact on the success of the Union armies west of the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, I think once the, once the publisher understood its impact uh, and the breadth of, of information that I had about Cincinnati and the Civil War from my many years of living here as well as all my years of uh, uh, research and doing tours in the city of, of the subject, uh, the publisher said, wow, this is a subject that really needs to get out to the, to the world um, because, it, in my opinion, it's been, uh, Cincinnati itself has been underrated as to its importance to the Civil War effort. Well, let's talk about the, the background of the city. Like all American cities, it was relatively new. It, it, it's amazing uh, to compare you know, European cities that have been there for 500 5,000 years uh, uh, to American cities. How, how new was Cincinnati in 1861? Well, it was um, just barely, seven, just over 70 years old. Um, it had been founded on uh, December 28, 1788, by a group of families who were the first to colonize what we know as the Northwest Territory, which was uh, essentially, America's very first act uh, that it established um, to form a new territory that encompassed everything east of the Mississippi River, west of the Pennsylvania border, and north of the Ohio River, and south of the Great Lakes. And so these new pioneers that were coming in primarily from Virginia and, and Pennsylvania and Connecticut were pouring in and they needed a place to settle, and they used the Ohio River as their form of transportation to settle Cincinnati in 1788. It wasn't originally called Cincinnati at the time. It was hmm. first named Lysantiville, which is an unusual term. It's, it's actually a combination of multiple languages. Um, and when General Arthur St. Clair, one of uh, the great Revolutionary War heroes that uh, uh, General Washington was very uh, fond of, he, he became the first um, leader of the Northwest Territory, and um, he came to Cincinnati uh, to inspect an, a brand-new fort that had been established there at Fort Washington. And, of course, uh, he didn't like the name Lysantiville, so he decided to change it to Cincinnati, which was named after his um, veterans group that he belonged to, the uh, Society of the Cincinnati. And uh, that, that's why Cincinnati came into being um, mm -hmm. with its current name. 
But it, it's, uh, I guess, fortunate he didn't choose to name it after himself, uh, given that, uh, you know, in 1791 he presided over the the greatest uh, defeat of the United States Army at the hands of Native Americans, uh, far bigger than Custer's defeat. It's a great bar question for people, bar bet question. Uh, uh, the, the St. <laughs> yes, Clair's it was great defeat at the Battle of the Wabash. Yes. Yeah. So, so had it been named, for, of course, uh, there's Lake St. Clair. Uh, outside of uh, Detroit, but that's that was named prior to Arthur St. Clair. It's not named for him. I had to look that up once to confirm it. Um, so uh, Los Santiville, then Cincinnati, formed... Uh, it, it grows rapidly. I, I think I said in the introduction, it, it was actually the most populous city west of, of the Allegheny Mountains by, by 1860. Is that correct? That's, it's the most populous city west of the Appalachian Mountains other than New Orleans. New Orleans was larger okay. than Cincinnati in 1860, um, but um, at one point it, it, was the, it was the largest city um, west of the Appalachians um, in terms of um, the north. So if you look at the northern states during the Civil War, Cincinnati dominated the west uh, in terms of its size and population. Well, well, we'll take a short break, come back and find out what brought people there and what they did when war broke out in 1861. We're talking about Cincinnati in the Civil War, the Union's Queen City. It's a book by David L. Mowry, who is our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David L. Maury, author of Cincinnati in the Civil War, the Union's Queen City. Uh, Dave, how did the did this, was the city always known as the Queen City? How did it get that nickname? It really started in a local newspaper in 1819, um, being called the Queen City of the West. It was a it was a, a self defined term that was running across the city and became a very popular term. But it really wasn't until the 1850s um, when. Um, a famous um, poet, whom we all know very well, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, wrote a poem known as, uh, he titled Catawba Wine, um, which was named after the, the wine that originated from the grapes that were grown around the Cincinnati Hills. Um, Nicholas Longworth, who was one of the first millionaires west of the Appalachian Mountains, um, decided to invest his money in, in a grape. Uh, that could grow well in, in the soils of the northern states of the United States, and he tried it out in his own vineyards surrounding Cincinnati, um, and it grew very well, and he developed a new wine called Catawba wine, uh, which became very popular not only in the United States, particularly at weddings, uh, but also around the world. And, um, of course, he re- um, Longfellow received a bottle of this wine one time from Nicholas Longworth as a gift, and Nicholas uh, Longworth's gift ended up becoming a title for, for a poem for Longfellow because Longfellow loved it so much. And in that mm. poem, he mentions the city as the Queen City of the West. And from there, the name took off across the world. Now, another perhaps less elegant nickname for the city was, was uh, Porkopolis. Uh, <laughs> it, it was... Was pork a bigger product than than growing uh, grapes for wine in in pre-war oh, Cincinnati? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, definitely so, Jerry. Um, especially during the 1850s, Cincinnati was the largest producer of pork in the United States. Um, it it was known for its slaughterhouses, particularly on the east side of the city. Um, what they what they knew knew it then at at that time as Slaughterhouse Row, which is just below Mount Adams. Uh, which is a really swanky neighborhood nowadays. Um, but back then it was a very smelly neighborhood, and um, the poorest people in the city, rent, they, they lived around that area because of the, the, the mess that it would cause from the slaughterhouses being washed down uh, into the Ohio River at that location. So, uh, in fact, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city at the time of the Civil War, known as Bucktown, uh, lay just below the area of the slaughterhouses, and that's where many of the African-Americans uh, lived at the time, and was also where many of the escaped slaves from uh, Kentucky uh, hid in plain sight amongst the, the free blacks who lived in Bucktown. I mentioned that in the introduction, Cincinnati, of course, is on the Ohio River, and that is the border between Kentucky and Ohio, or Kentucky and Indiana, or Illinois. So you've got free states to the north and the, the slave state of Kentucky to the south. Presumably, then, there were people in Cincinnati who, who had strong feelings both for and against uh, the institution of slavery. What what was the, the temperature like uh, in terms of that issue before the war? 
I think um, historian Nikki Taylor puts it best in her book, Frontiers of Freedom, which really concentrated on the subject of, of slavery and its impact on the Civil War and its impact on American society in antebellum years in Cincinnati. Um, he, she described Cincinnati as being a city of three intersecting identities, uh, northern in its geography, southern in its economics and politics, and Western in its commercial aspirations. So basically, Cincinnati suffered from multiple personality disorder with regard to um, slavery in the South. Um, it depended heavily on, on Southern economy um, and, and supplying the revenue it needed to, to exist as a city. Um, most of its goods were shipped South, particularly to um, places like Memphis, um, New Orleans, and beyond where the international markets took their took Cincinnati goods out to foreign countries through the port of New Orleans. Um, so for, for many Cincinnatians, um, they did not want any part of removing slavery from, from United States soil because it would anger their primary economic market. Um, and, and of course, Kentucky was a slave state, as you mentioned, and so much of their market was in Kentucky. Um, but even more were farther south. On the other hand, though, there was a, a fairly substantial underground railroad presence in the city. Indeed. Yeah, in fact, um, it developed in the 1830s uh, when Cincinnati became more refined. As it grew and grew, um, it grew from a town that was mainly uh, settled by Virginians and Mar- Marylandites, and uh, those folks had grown up in a society where African Americans were treated as subservient or not treated as human beings at all. And those folks who settled Cincinnati in the early part of its history, in the first couple decades of, of its history, um, really felt that way about how they would treat blacks in Ohio. Even though Ohio was set up as a free state, at the time of its uh, of its um, formation in 1803, uh, only a year later, uh, the state of Ohio plat- it passed its first black laws, which greatly hindered the equality of black citizens, um, both legally as well as financially. And so, really, blacks who moved from the South to Ohio, hoping to find freedom and equality, found that they've ha- had freedom but equality was non-existent in Cincinnati. So, given that, that, that I guess touches on one of the, the challenges uh, in teaching civil war that people will assume if the South uh, seceded to preserve its institution of slavery, the North must have resisted secession to end slavery, and of course, uh, Cincinnati is not uncommon being a northern location where most white northerners have no interest whatsoever in ending slavery in 1861 that will of course evolve over the course of the war but uh, but people in Cincinnati were did feel very strongly about preserving the union in 1861 uh, absolutely that was the prevailing attitude at the time the war had started was uh, union first slavery second so, so how did Cincinnati manifest its support for the war effort when, when the war started? Well, it, 
you can really see it in the election of 1861 of Abraham Lincoln. Um, by the time the Civil War started, much of Cincinnati had grown from that Virginia, Maryland background, that southern society that is, had settled the city originally. And by the 1830s, the New Englanders were starting to move in because the city was becoming more refined. It, New, Englanders, New Englanders who wanted to start a new life and also wanted to keep some of the refinement of the North, the East, like they had been familiar with with New York City and Boston, they came to Cincinnati, and these New Englanders were heavily in favor of anti-slavery. And so they formed many of the abolitionist societies that grew in the 1830s in Cincinnati. One of those great persons that moved from the Northeast was uh, Salmon Portland Chase, who, was, mm-hmm. who would become... Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury. Well, we know Chase is very well known as the Attorney General and runaway Negroes. He earned that sobriquet when he defended runaway slaves and underground railroad conductors in Cincinnati. Um, He was a Cincinnati for many years. He also became Ohio's first Republican governor. Um, He was one of the founders of the Free Soil Liberty Parties as well as the uh, Republican Party. So when Abraham, Le- Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1861. Um, the, the, the city had grown into a city of immigrants, um, and nearly 27 percent of its of its population at the time were German Americans, and another 12 percent were Irish Americans. And those groups felt, uh, especially after the nativist movement and. In Ohio and across the country, they felt persecuted just like the African Americans felt persecuted in Cincinnati. So they kind of sided with the plight of the African American. And so what you see, and if you compare the the elections prior to 1860, you'll see that the 1860 election was was a big turnaround for Cincinnati because for the first time, these immigrants had had a great impact on supporting anti-slavery movement, which was manifested in the Republican Party. Nearly 46% of the vote for Lincoln in 1860 was was for him, and Mm -hmm. that allowed him to get elected over the Democrats, even though the Democratic Party pretty much prevailed across Cincinnati. So people support uh, support Lincoln and support essentially an anti-slavery platform or anti-expansion of slavery the uh, what about recruitment when talk about the uh, the soldiers that Cincinnati will send to the war when when the fighting begins yeah this was a great concern across the north was would Cincinnati side with the south or would they side with the north when it came to recruiting um, they were very afraid being that Cincinnati was the largest city in the northwest of the Appalachian Mountains that a great many Confederate soldiers come out of the city, but on the very day that Fort Sumter was fired upon, it became very evident immediately the next day that Cincinnatians were going to side with the North, and mainly because they believed wholeheartedly across the city um, that Union was, the, the preservation of the Union was the most important thing they had to do. They had to preserve that Union. And so no matter what the question of slavery was about in the city, it was heavily divided in the city, Union was more important. And as a result, um, 
you know, I, if I had a percentage to throw out there, I would say at least 98% of, of the able-bodied men in Cincinnati would have sided for the Union at the time of, of, the, of the firing on Fort Sumter. Uh, very few actually went to the South. And, um, and that's because it was heavily patriotic. The city favored the Union more so than the Confederacy. Uh, it wanted to take out the, the Confederacy and, and remove the disunion that had been caused by their secession. Um, and so now that war was declared, Cincinnati would side with Abraham Lincoln. Now, because it's on the Ohio River, on the border with Kentucky, uh Certainly, there must have been at least a perception of a, a threat to the city's security. Uh, for people who don't know the, the geography, there are two Kentucky cities immediately adjacent that are, are essentially part of greater Cincinnati. Uh, talk about that relationship uh, across the river with, with Kentucky immediately south of the city. Yeah, uh, sitting, sitting on the opposite side of Cincinnati, on the opposite bank, in Kentucky were two major cities for Kentucky. Uh, one is Covington, which is a little bit to the, to the west, and Newport, which is a little bit to the east. Um, both of them sitting, sit along the Licking River, which is directly uh, in the middle of Cincinnati, opposite, opposite to the city. So essentially you have this tri-city area, um, and it was an interesting it was an interesting study for me to study Newport and, and Covington along with Cincinnati because Covington and Newport were slave cities. They had plenty of slaves walking the streets every day, um, and many of them were work on the steamboats in Cincinnati. So there were slaves everywhere in, in, in the area, and Cincinnati and Saldi slaves daily um, working on the docks or, or taking the ferry back and forth with their masters, or even if Cincinnati would cross the Ohio River that day to, to work in Newport or, or visit a relative, they would see these slaves. So Cincinnati were very, very familiar with slavery, very familiar with these two cities. But it was interesting to see that when war broke out in 1861, both Newport and Covington sided for the Union, although a greater portion of their cities did to go to the Confederacy, it was a smaller, it was a small percentage, um, more like maybe 10 to 20 percent of the civilian population sided with the South. Majority of them sided with the North. And again, it was because of this immigration of German Americans and Irish Americans to all three cities um, in the Cincinnati region, what we call Greater Cincinnati. Um, it's because of those immigrants that the Republican Party and the North gain the uh, support of those three cities. So, it, so with the, the military frontier secure, at least in that, that the immediate uh, adjacent parts of Kentucky were not going to attack, uh, you describe still that there were fortifications built around Cincinnati uh, immediately at, at the start of the war and then later throughout the war. Uh, was who, who built those fortifications? Did, did the army send regiments in from outside? Did the civilians do this? Where did they come from? Well, it started with civilian population creating them. Um, Major General George Brinton McClellan, whom we've all very well known, uh, know as the first commander of the Army of Potomac at, at the battle, you know, after the Battle of Bull Run in July of 1861. George McClellan was a Cincinnatian when the war broke out. He was. Um, 
he was uh, president of the eastern branch of the high mississippi railroad and he lived in a very fine house right across the street from nicholas longworth the millionaire i talked about earlier and um, mcclellan was selected by governor william dennison of ohio to be commander of the ohio militia at the beginning of the war well one of the first things that he had suggested to governor dennison was if you make me commander, I, I need to find a way to defend Cincinnati from possible attack through Kentucky. Now, at that point, Kentucky had not declared its neutrality yet, but it was it, it would soon come. But it was very important for Lincoln to keep Kentucky happy and not allow troops into Kentucky to defend to defend the northern states. So. Kentucky was off limits to George B. McClellan, but it, but initially McClellan's plan was let's build some fortifications in northern Kentucky to protect the city from possible southern attack. Um, that plan was put into action after Kentucky's neutrality was violated in September of 1861, and the very first forts and batteries were built by General Ornsby Mitchell, another Cincinnatian. Uh, Mitchell uh, used Colonel. Colonel Charles Whittlesey, a very famous engineer and astrologer and, and geologist known throughout America at the time, he asked, he asked Colonel Willesley to design this line of fortifications. And by the end of 1861, there were about, um, uh, about seven of those forts and batteries built. But it wasn't until September of 1862 when General Henry Heath and his 8,000 Confederates threatened Cincinnati and northern Kentucky uh, during the Kentucky campaign, um, that's when the civilians finished off that plan and built, um, you know, uh, close to 30, or just over 30 batteries and forts stretching for eight miles across the neck of what we call northern Kentucky. Well, the, we're going to take another short break, come back, talk more about the history of Cincinnati in the Civil War. It's the Union's Queen City. And we'll do that with author David L. Mowry. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with David Mowry, author of Cincinnati in the Civil War, the Union's Queen City. We've been talking about the city's response to the outbreak of the war, the construction of uh, fortifications, the threat to the city in the uh, Kentucky campaign of 1862. Uh, that was when we see the, uh, the population called out the so-called squirrel hunters, uh, who were the squirrel hunters? Uh, the squirrel hunters were uh, local citizens uh, from Cincinnati as well as across the states of Illinois, Ohio, and Indiana who were called out by the governors of Ohio and Indiana at the time. And uh, they came from all the farms and small towns across the states, and they came in their homespun clothes. They brought their weapons, some, many of them just squirrel squirrel rifles, hence the name they were given, squirrel hunters. Um, Many of them old guns from the Revolutionary War. Uh, One even brought a claymore that had been passed down from a Scottish family and uh, from the the days of the uh, Jacobites. Um, It it was a motley crew, to say the least, and they were all dressed in all different um, types of garb. Um, they didn't have most of them did not have uniforms. Some did, some didn't, but most did not. Um, but it was an interesting crew, and and essentially, um, when General Lew Wallace, who commanded Cincinnati and um, was in charge of forming the defense of the city, and during the September 1862 crisis, uh, called upon these these men to to defend the city of Cincinnati from this Confederate um, advance. They came in droves, in thousands. Um, and in fact, by the time uh, General Henry Heath arrived in the doorstep of northern Kentucky, just outside of um, what is today present-day Fort Mitchell, Kentucky, a suburb of Covington, um, there were 60,000 squirrel hunters defending those eight miles of trenches. Now, most of those squirrel hunters were used for digging trenches. They were... They were likely to run at the first shot, um, and General Lew Wallace, being a veteran uh, commander at this time, um, having fought at the Battle of Shiloh and and was a was a very experienced leader, knew that very well. So he took advantage of the squirrel hunters by using their strength uh, rather than their uh, willingness to fight. Um, he also had at his disposal another uh, twenty five thousand men who were. Um, Soldiers uh, who had volunteered for regular service, and they, many of them were Greenhorn regiments, but they were brought in from Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, and they poured into the city as well. So by the time it was over, uh, Lou Wallace had gathered 84,800 soldiers to defend eight miles of trenches, and when General Henry Heath's 8,000 men faced that on September 10th, 1862, um, Henry Heath made a reconnaissance and realized it wasn't worth attacking this very strong defensive position with 
over 84,000 soldiers and plenty of artillery. It just wasn't worth it. And plus, at the same time, his Henry Heath's commander, General Kirby Smith, said, I need you back in Lexington because um, we're going to need to defend against Don Collar's Buell's Army of Ohio, which was uh, moving eastward from Louisville to, uh, to attack Bragg. So Cincinnati was not actually attacked at that time, but it it, it stood off the attack with a uh, with a powerful set of fortifications and lots of people, uh, even if not not the most experienced warriors. Uh, one of the things your book does is describe the 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 survival of some of these fortifications and other things. Uh, uh, from the Civil War era, and I definitely want to ask you about that. A substantial part of the book would be a useful guide to any anyone traveling to Cincinnati. If uh, if I were to go there today, uh, what, what's the state of preservation of Civil War sites in, in the Cincinnati area? Uh, it's unfortunate, um, Jerry, because Cincinnati over time, especially in the early 1900s, decided to revamp its downtown area. So many of the Civil War sites that were well-known to uh, the era have been since lost because of progress, um, unfortunately. But there are a few sites that are still around northern Kentucky and, and Cincinnati and Hamilton County, where Cincinnati resides. And um, I, I mentioned not only the ones that are still there and still standing, uh, but I also mentioned the locations of all the sites of, of the Civil War buildings that were really important during the era, as well as the Cincinnati Quartermaster Depot, which was one of the largest quartermaster depots in, in, in the northern states during the Civil War. Um, I mentioned those sites using GPS locations so people can go there and see where it stood, uh, understand what was there, what, what that site was all about, whether it be um, something related to the depot, whether it's related to uh, an underground railroad site, um, a military site. Um, there was even a skirmish in Hamilton County during Morgan's Great Raid of 1863. I, I mentioned that location. And of course, the, the, one of the best places in, in Hamilton County and Cincinnati for people to visit is, is um, Camp Denison, uh, which is pretty well preserved even today. Uh, you can see the site of Camp Denison, which was Ohio's largest Civil War camp and one of the largest Civil War camps throughout the North. While we're talking about preservation, on, on your last visit here, we talked, of course, about Morgan's Raid and, and uh, Bluffington Island, where the raiders were finally uh, brought to bay. What? What? Uh, can you give us an update on, on preservation in general in southern Ohio in the, the Morgan's Raid territory? Um, well, we have the John Hunt Morgan Heritage Trail, which I helped volunteer for for 15 years to establish. It was um, dedicated on on the July thirteenth, eighteen. I'm sorry, July thirteenth, twenty thirteen. Exactly 150 years after Morgan entered the state of Ohio. So we do have that. Um, in terms of sites being preserved themselves, not many to be said. Um, again, we don't have many Civil War sites that are marked in Cincinnati. Um, there are a few, however. Um, there are a few museums, of course. And um, the, the Freedom Center, I would say, is probably our best museum relative to the Underground Railroad. It's located down near um, the Great American Ballpark where the Cincinnati Reds play. 
uh, that's a great museum to visit. Also, the Cincinnati Museum Center is a great museum to learn about the Civil War in Cincinnati. Um, and then we do have the Taft Museum, which is actually the original house of Nicholas Longworth, whom I mentioned several times in, in our discussion today. Um, that house still stands down there, too, and it's a museum you can visit. Uh, the the book that we're talking about, Cincinnati and the Civil War, the Union's Queen Cities, uh, City, uh, also features excellent maps. Hal Jesperson, who does seemingly all the maps of the Civil War these days, uh, they're, they're always outstanding. Uh, and they really help get a sense of what you're talking about here, especially as you know, some many sites are no longer recognizable, but you give the GPS coordinates and we can get a sense of what was there. Uh, there, there are a lot of uh, miscellaneous stories throughout this book. Uh, we haven't touched on, for example, the, the naval aspect of, of Cincinnati in the war. Uh, I mean, people not from the area think Cincinnati is an inland city, uh, but it had a huge effect on the, the war on the western waters. Can, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Cincinnati was the birthplace of the U.S. Navy's Brownwater Navy during the Civil War. Um, in in um, April, May of 1861, George B. McClellan was was authorized to build its first gunboats for the Western Flotilla, um, which which um, became the predominant Union Navy flotilla to dominate the um, Western rivers, particularly the Mississippi River, but also the Ohio River, Tennessee, and Cumberland Rivers, and the Missouri River. Um, and it started all in Cincinnati. And the reason for that is because Cincinnati had three major boatyards there. Um, only St. Louis and Mound City um, and Louisville had boatyards of similar quality, but not as numerous as Cincinnati. In fact, at one point in 1850, Cincinnati was the largest producer of steamboats in the world, not just in the United mm. States, but in the entire world. Um, Cincinnati lived off the steamboat. And so... It's Fulton District, which is uh, on the eastern side of Cincinnati, um, produced thousands of steamboats um, over its period of time when it was predominantly uh, a steamboat manufacturing facility. Um, but during the Civil War, um, Secretary of the Navy Wells decided, well, let's, let's create some shallow draft gunboats to control the rivers. And we need a special design, which um, James B. Eads provided, and Samuel Pook got involved, and they all worked for uh, Commodore uh, John Rogers II. Uh, Commodore jo John Rogers was sent by Wells to work with uh, George McClellan, who had controlled the entire, uh, the entire project. Um, you would say, why in the world is an Army guy in charge of a Navy guy? Well, at the time, uh, this project, nobody trusted the U.S. Navy to do a project like this. Uh, they were... They were they were more involved in deep water ships, not with shallow draft boats. So they thought the, the Army could control it better, so that's why they gave McClellan the project. But um, McClellan was a very smart man when he came to organization. Um, and McClellan immediately said, I'm giving this to you, Commodore Rogers. You take it, you run, report back to me how much it's going to cost, uh, how much time it's going to take, etc." And Rogers ran with it and built the first three, actually converted the first three civilian steamboats into gunboats. 
and they became very famous on the Western Rivers, um, USS Lexington, USS Tyler, and the USS Conestoga. All three were very important in the early battles of the of the Western Rivers during the Civil War. And from there, um, the three gunboat facilities um, converted civilian steamboats into tin clads um, until eventually there were 78 different commissioned U.S. Navy boats that were, that were either built or purchased or refitted in Cincinnati during the Civil War period. So 78. And of those 78, 46 were tin clads, which was the largest naval facility that that produced tin clads during the Civil War. Well, you you list in a in an appendix here all the names of all these these boats and their, along with their initial armament, how many uh, you know, twenty pounders and uh, thirty two pounders and so on. Each of them uh, were equipped with, and it really is uh, surprising to see just what a what an armada uh, the city of Cincinnati produced to help uh, dominate the the rivers in the West. One other uh, thing I want to touch on, uh, getting back to the civilian side of the city during the war, the Great Western Sanitary Fair, uh, the the city kept showing its support for the war throughout, and this was was another element of that. Yeah, in fact, the Cincinnati branch of the U.S. Sanitary Commission was probably the most... um, most efficient of the branches in the West. Um, you can compare it to maybe the branch from Illinois and the branch from St. Louis, but since, certainly Cincinnati did a very, very good job with its branch of the Sanitary Commission, formed many hospitals in, in the Cincinnati and northern Kentucky areas, um, including the, the hospital at Camp Denison, and also it, it um, purchased steamboats to bring wounded back from southern battlefields back to the city of Cincinnati for treatment. Um, it also um, sent supplies to the, to the soldiers, uh, you know, clothes, bandages, um, even food, and it needed money to do all this. Well, it ran, uh, it ran a, a bunch of different, um, you know, um, fundraising activities throughout the war, but probably the most famous was the Sanitary Fair of December 1863, um, which ran into the very first week of January. During that three-week period of that fair, they raised $235,400. And to us today, that's not much, right? But if you multiply that by inflation, in 2021 dollars, that's $4.1 million they raised just in the three-week period. It, it's not bad, and even two hundred thousand dollars is not bad. If if we could raise that at Civil War Talk Radio, I'd be happy. Uh, <laughs> we're unfortunately at the end of our time, David. This is it's a fascinating book to learn about Cincinnati. Anyone going there would want to have a copy to see what sites are around or what used to be around. Uh, I hope you'll rejoin us uh, five years from now with another project. Uh, so well, thanks thank for you. being on the show. I appreciate and it, Jerry. Look- thanks so much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.